Distributed systems are required to run most modern enterprise software. Application services need multiple instances for scalability and failover. Large databases are sharded onto multiple nodes. Logging services, streaming frameworks, and continuous integration tools all require the orchestration of more than one server. Deploying a distributed system has historically been difficult because the nodes of the system must be managed by the underlying infrastructure. If I have a distributed system that I want to deploy, the complexity of that deployment is going to be different depending on whether I'm running on AWS or VMware or my own bare metal server infrastructure. Heterogeneous server infrastructure makes it hard to sell distributed applications that get deployed to that infrastructure. A vendor that is selling a distributed database would need to figure out how to make their database work on the infrastructure of any given customer. Kubernetes has simplified the process of deploying a distributed application. Kubernetes is a container orchestration system that has steadily grown in popularity, to the point where the ecosystem is mature and the software is stable. And now that the software industry has a reliable, portable means of deploying a distributed application, the enterprise software market is becoming easier to enter for the companies that want to sell a distributed application. Replicated is a company that builds products for software delivery. Replicated allows for the distribution and updating of applications that would have been hard to deploy in the past. Grant Miller and Mark Campbell are the CEO and CTO of Replicated, and they join the show to talk about the modern enterprise software market and the process for delivering software to companies that might otherwise have trouble consuming it. Full disclosure, Replicated is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and dropdowns and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect, so check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. Grant and Mark, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having us. You guys have been building Replicated for about five years. And your company requires you to have a detailed understanding of how enterprises are buying software. Describe to me the modern large enterprise and how it buys software. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of context that we can unpack there. So first, you know, I, I think that specifically for Replicated, we think about software really needing to be enterprise ready. And so we actually built this guide like three or four years ago called EnterpriseReady.io. And that guide is sort of underlines how SaaS and software companies should be building software that enterprises will want to buy. Turns out there's sort of this standard set of common features that every enterprise software application really needs to have. And I think for a long time, like people didn't really like they, they kind of thought about those features as one-off features, or maybe sometimes they were special requests, but Ultimately, over the last few years, it's really consolidated down to these like core features. And this is things like single sign-on, audit logging, role-based access control, change management, product security, you know, team management, integrations, reporting, right? And so 
those features need to be present in the software that an enterprise is going to buy. And from there, you know, obviously they need to have like core business value, but that's the thing that really differentiates how an enterprise is going to evaluate a product versus how a, you know, a SMB or mid-market company might be evaluating. There's a shift from the top-down purchasing process that might be led by a CSO or a CIO. That's the historical form of purchasing. But now there's more of a bottoms-up purchasing process that can often involve engineers. Maybe the engineer buys a cloud service or an API and starts using it in their product, or they start using the free version, and then eventually many people are using the free version within the company, and then eventually there's an enterprise deal. That's more of the bottoms-up approach. At an enterprise, how does the breakdown between different software products distribute between bottoms-up and top-down? Is there more bottoms-up or top-down software distribution and purchasing? Yeah. So, you know, I think you're right. This is definitely changing. And and the world is shifting more and more towards this sort of like bottom-up model. And that's happening for a handful of different reasons. The first part you mentioned, right? Like just the availability of cloud services and software and tools that folks can just start adopting. I'd also say that the that open source has really been a huge factor in that as well, right? It's just not that hard for someone to find an open source project and include it in a product that they're building, and then for that to become, you know, a core part of the infrastructure. So you have these sort of like, you know, empowered developers and empowered sort of frontline folks who are finding tools and projects that that really help them do their work. And so as they start to use those, oftentimes these are, you know, freemium or low cost or open source. And so they lack a lot of these like enterprise ready features that we talked about. So as those applications and those projects become more widely adopted in an enterprise, you start to see demand for more controls and more functionality and more features. And so as that happens, you know, you start to get this like, you know, starts with one or two teams, and then maybe it spreads out to 10 teams. And so there's this acknowledgement within the enterprise that, okay, we need to take this new tool that's starting to become really important in our, you know, in our workflows and our processes, and make sure that it's enterprise ready. And so that's often the time when that sort of bottom up motion starts to really become sort of a combination of top down. So they'll engage a sales team and they'll start to talk about, you know, the sort of, you know, good, better, best pricing plans. They'll move from that sort of easy to adopt freemium model to the next, you know, highest plan or maybe a plan after that. And maybe they'll talk about spreading it throughout the entire organization, right? So an enterprise could look at a piece of software and say, wow, there's a lot of success that these 10 teams are getting from this software. If we got our entire you know, organization to use these and we created like an enterprise license agreement, it could really be an you know, advantage for us. And so they'll start to negotiate what that looks like. And then again, they'll be asking for these features around security and scalability and how do they integrate it with all the other software. And so that's when a salesperson or like, you know, head of product, someone's going to step in and kind of help lay the roadmap for how all that's going to work together. I think many of the people that listen to this show are either working in an enterprise or they're working in a software vendor that sells into an enterprise. So maybe they work on a database or an authentication solution or a security product or a log management product. And these software vendors, some of them are going to be selling purely cloud products. They're going to be selling purely maybe through the cloud marketplaces. But many of them will eventually get to the point where they're going to need to sell to a wider array of customers, including large enterprises with a variety of servers. And I'd like to know from your perspective, what are the biggest struggles that I'm going to encounter if I'm a software vendor as I am going to market? If I want to actually sell a software product into an enterprise, what are the biggest struggles that I'm going to encounter? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, there's like, you know, all of the 
standard go-to-market challenges, right? How do you get awareness? How do you get people to you know want to buy? How do you create urgency? But then on the actual development side, you know, I think that's where you know one you're going to have to develop these features, like these enterprise-ready features. And then one of those core features, and I think you're kind of alluding to, is this idea that you know a multi-tenant SaaS application is oftentimes like not very tenable inside of these large organizations, right? The data that an AI application or a developer tool might require could be seen as very sensitive information or sensitive data. And so that large enterprise might start to ask for, you know, we call like an on-prem version of that product, right? So that's, you know, this kind of goes by many names, self-managed, self-hosted, but a version of that software that isn't hosted and managed on servers that the software vendor controls, but rather is deployed to servers that the enterprise controls. Now, those servers could be, you know, in our racked and stacked in a data center somewhere, or they could actually be in AWS or in Google or in Azure, but just in the enterprise's account, right? So these are controlled from like a logical level by the enterprise. And so, you know, this is a really complicated problem to solve. You know, it's always been sort of in software over the last 20 years. There's been this like, it's like almost this religious belief that's like, you can't do both. You either are a SaaS company, like a multi-tenant SaaS company, or you are like an on-prem software company. And that's because like, there's just a lot of challenges about doing either, right? So if you're doing on-prem software, you have to think about releases and, and disconnected supportability. And how do you make sure that you know, you're keeping your customers up to date rather than having them all in disparate versions. And so there's all of these really interesting challenges that come from that. And, you know, plus just the fact that, I mean, you think about 10 years ago, building reliable software was just so hard, right? And there was all these different sort of tools and, and, and ways that people were going about it. And, you know, ultimately... I just don't think that we had the right patterns and primitives for building truly reliable software, but that's all changed, right? So what we've seen in the last, you know, five years is that almost all software development is moving to this sort of like cloud native architecture, right? And really in the last two years, we've seen just the domination of Kubernetes. And so Kubernetes, in our opinion, is truly the canonical patterns and primitives of building reliable distributed software. And with that, it allows a software vendor to use the exact same deployment model, right, that they're using to deploy a multi-tenant SaaS application to reuse that and deliver that manifest plus those images that, that sort of create that Kubernetes application and deliver that privately to enterprises to run their own version. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other interesting challenges once you start doing that. But generally, that sort of model, we think, creates what we call sort of modern on-prem, right? And this idea that you as a software vendor, you don't need to fork your code base. You don't need to think about it as a separate product. You need to just leverage these new patterns and primitives and deliver a Kubernetes-based application to your customers so they can run it privately. And that's not for every customer, right? That's going to be for the largest enterprises who are really concerned about the security of the data that they want your application to process. Can you describe in more detail why and how Kubernetes has changed the relationship between the enterprise buyer and the software vendor? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things that it's it's changed there. One is instead of Every time that enterprise receives software, they have to understand how to deploy it. What are the requirements? Like, you know, what what resources do I need to provision for this? And what steps do I need? What one-off process inside my organization in order to get the software up and running and monitor and operate it? Now it becomes, oh, this is a Kubernetes piece of software. So I can apply all of the practices, all the knowledge, all the skills that we've been building inside our enterprise. So I can deploy this thing. I can monitor it using the tools that I already have monitoring my Kubernetes infrastructure. Then on top of that is that the application will conform to those Kubernetes primitives around these common interfaces that Kubernetes provides around networking, storage, container runtimes, interfaces like this. So if 
the application developer has written, you know, traditionally an application developer will write code and say, it needs this port, it expects this volume, like this directory is hard coded inside the code, whatever it is, all these assumptions they make about the runtime are now configured through that interface. So the enterprise, when they're operating it and when they're installing it, they can choose to relocate that. They can choose to create a service abstraction on top of it. They can apply a service mesh to it. They can run the storage however they want to. So it allows them more flexibility for that last mile configuration of the application that historically was just tightly coupled into the application. Yeah, I think it really becomes the common substrate for both vendors and enterprises to build and deploy software. And you know, this has tons of benefits beyond just like portability, right? We're also talking about the fact that, you know, developers, their skills can now translate from company to company because as everyone starts to use this canonical stack, you know, you're not entering into Facebook and trying to learn their, you know, system of container deployment, which they call Tupperware or going to Twitter to do Mesos or doing like everything is moving to Kubernetes and that means that as developers, our skill sets can really transfer and we can walk into a new company, pick up their stack, know sort of like the patterns that they're using because we've seen this many times before. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a scalable monitoring and analytics platform that unifies metrics, logs, traces, and more. Use Datadog's advanced features to monitor and manage SLO performance in real time. Visualize all your SLOs in one place. Easily search, filter, and sort SLOs and share key information with detailed, intuitive dashboards. Plus, Datadog automatically calculates and displays your error budget so that you can see your progress at a glance. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com datadog and sign up for a free 14-day trial, and you will also get a complimentary t-shirt from Datadog. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog. Sign up and get that free t-shirt. The first idea that you're talking about there is that the fact that Kubernetes has become the canonical way of managing infrastructure means that as you go as an employee from enterprise to enterprise, you're going to have a consistent experience of how you're managing your infrastructure as opposed to the status quo today, or perhaps, you know, certainly two, three, four years ago, where you had to learn whatever ad hoc infrastructure solution the company's built to manage their different servers, whether they're doing some kind of chef situation, or they've just got a bunch of servers that they manually, you know, run scripts on some kind of distributed in-home, in-house bash solution that they've built. Today, many, many, many companies are moving towards Kubernetes as the unified way that they're going to be managing their infrastructure. And then a downstream impact of that is that if you want to sell software to these companies, you now can have some expectation of the kind of medium that your software is going to be deployed onto. And that simplifies the sales process for distributed applications because most of the important software that is getting sold to an enterprise today is some kind of distributed system, some kind of database or logging solution or something like that that is sold that it has to be distributed, it has to be managing multiple servers, multiple containers. And in the past, that was just a very hard solution to sell because it was going to be the deployment medium was going to vary from company to company. And the management of different servers was going to vary from company to company. So if you have a steady infrastructure medium, then you as a software vendor can have an expectation of how you want to deploy a distributed system. And then I think one other benefit is if you have an expectation there it becomes much easier for you as a vendor to work with the enterprise that you have sold to on an ongoing basis. Because usually when you sell software to them, there's going to be some kind of maintenance agreement, there's going to be some kind of ongoing solution, and you're going to have to do a little bit of work with the company. So if you are a vendor and you've sold software to an enterprise, 
How is that consistency of Kubernetes making your life doing maintenance easier? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, part of it is because the underlying platform of Kubernetes provides so many important reliability primitives that you sort of know that your application is going to be able to scale horizontally and really have a lot of the other sort of like core things that you want to have an expectation for how your application can run successfully, right? So you're getting all of these consistent patterns and primitives. You know that it's going to work there. If they can run Kubernetes applications, you can, you know, one of the things that we try to provide are like something we call pre-flight checks. We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but you can validate that the conformance of their cluster meets the requirements of your application. And so you're basically able to say, hey, look, here's this, common pattern we both follow to deploy scalable applications. Here's our, you know, manifest that describes how this application should be run. And we are, in, so it's, it's almost like we're taking away this manual operations concept where I used to, you know, SSH into a server and make configuration changes. And now instead, we're just writing these manifests and then we're handing that manifest to Kubernetes and we're letting Kubernetes manage the application and the underlying infrastructure to conform to the desired state that we described in that manifest. And so if I'm handing that to my servers that are in AWS, why can't my enterprise customer just hand that to their servers that are in AWS and have that same desired state applied and run the application just as scalably, just as successfully? Tell me more about the typical operations that a vendor might want to help an enterprise with. So if I've sold a piece of software to the enterprise, what does my ongoing life look like? I know it's not just a one-time self-service sale. So what kinds of work am I going to have to do with my enterprise customer as time goes on? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a handful of things, right? Number one, you have to think beyond just day one, right, of like deliver the software and get it running. And you really have to think about day two and sort of this, this long-term operations of the software. And so that's your know, number one, how do you make sure that you're delivering updates in a way that the enterprise can process those and deploy them through the same processes they use to deploy their internally developed software, right? So that's a core concept that we believe in. The other part would just be, you know, things are like, we don't think that the world is is perfect by any means yet. We don't think that like Kubernetes applications, like this is an error-free way. Like there's probably going to be issues. And so you're going to need some type of troubleshooting that you can do long-term and do that in a disconnected way where you're not taking control of the machine remotely. You're trying to do something where you're still getting access to all the data. So you know, you're going to, and we've built frameworks around this, you know, we call it replicated troubleshoot, which is a framework for, for really identifying, you know, different log files and commands that you might want to run in your customer's environment to identify potential issues and then run it through redaction tools and analyzers that will sort of supply next actions the customer can take to troubleshoot the installation or some issue that might be happening. And, you know, there's, there's a handful of other things I think you're going to need to be doing. You know, part of that is, you know, is making sure that your updates are continuously successful. Like as you add new components, as you add new parts of your software, you need to make sure that the environment is, is able to, to manage and handle those. So, you know, finding ways to validate that every time you deliver is also really important. So the reason we're discussing this is because at Replicated, you have been focusing on software delivery, the software delivery process that improves things for the vendors and improves things for the enterprises that are consuming it from the vendors. Describe the stack of software that you've built to enable that software delivery process. Yeah, sure. So I'll give a quick overview and I'll let Mark go into a little more detail. But we basically have developed a suite of open source projects. And these are really purpose-built Kubernetes projects that are designed to sort of help facilitate the common challenges around delivering and managing Kubernetes off-the-shelf software. And so we've open sourced all of these. And so that was a really, that's a big part of what we do. And so, you know, we call it the, you know, the Kubernetes off-the-shelf software, we refer to it as COTS with a K. 
And this is kind of a play on traditional commercial off-the-shelf software, which is called COTS. It's kind of how the industry would talk about, you know, shrink-wrapped or packaged software 15 years ago. So we're kind of revitalizing that term for the Kubernetes era. But, you know, we have these different COTS sort of components that are all open source and really tackle different challenges. I'll kind of let Mark dive into those. Yeah. So at the core of it, we have this, the main COTS product is this CLI. It's written as a kube control plugin. So it executes on the client side. And we made that decision just so that we could work with existing clusters really well without having to ask for higher security requirements or like, you know, cluster admin level permissions. And with that kube control plugin, an enterprise can just receive the upstream URL of an application in a license file and then install it. And when it installs, it actually installs the next component that we have, which is called, we call it COTS ADM. And that's the in-cluster admin console. And that's presented as a UI that's served inside the cluster. And it has a few, you know, core functionalities like a dashboard so that you can add some Prometheus metrics and like the health of the application in general, view the license, sync the license if you've requested changes or the expiration has changed on it. And then like view the downstreams or sorry, view the version history that are available in all the downstream clusters that you have it deployed to. So you can see the diffs that are applying. You can check for updates. You can make those last mile customization changes. One of the things that we built core into COTS and COTS ADM from the beginning is a deep integration with a project in the Kubernetes ecosystem called Customize with a K. And that allows the enterprise to take the YAML and make last mile changes to it that are relevant to their configuration, but probably not relevant to other configurations and other clusters that need to run it. And then we also have built-in support with pre-flight checks and troubleshooting that Grant mentioned earlier. So if the application stops working, you can click a button and it'll collect a bunch of support bundle type data, collect it into an archive, redact it, and then even perform automated analysis against that to show you what might be wrong based on what the application vendor has packaged into the application and a lot of the stuff that we've done. And then the last part to mention is that it enables you to kind of move away from this click to deploy, like my application received an update. So you click a button and allows you to like integrate this into a GitOps workflow. So you can connect your repository, whether that's GitHub, GitHub Enterprise, Bitbucket, GitLab, wherever that is, and then updates to the application, whether they're license updates, configuration changes, customization changes you've made, or the vendor itself has updated the application, they'll just be created as commits into that Git repository, which then you can run that through any kind of workflow you want for, you know, security scanning or any type of like post or pre-deployment validation of those manifests before they get deployed to the cluster. Yeah, I think that part's really important, right? So, you know, I think last time we were on the show, we talked about a project that we called Replicated Ship. And COTS ADM is really the spiritual successor to Replicated Ship. We sort of took what we learned with building sort of replicated classic plus replicated ship. And we created this COTS suite of tools, right? And one of the core concepts of, of ship was both like, you know, getting customized and that sort of last mile configuration. But it was also, we really believe in this concept of GitOps, right? And, and the folks at Weaveworks kind of have pioneered this idea. But GitOps is really about version controlling all of the sort of configuration as code. So all the manifests before you actually deploy those to a cluster, right? You should check those into version control in order to use the change management processes that we're also familiar with a version control. And from our perspective, the really cool thing that this does is if you think about like how you manage, uh, you know, third-party software versioning, like for a long time, you might be doing like you know, in the Kubernetes world, you might have done like a Helm upgrade or a Helm install, like these, these sort of different like commands that are just going to operate directly in the cluster. And now with what we've done with COTS and COTS ADM, you can actually manage third-party software versioning through version control, right? And we think that just makes sense. It's like, and it's automated. It's that you don't have to do anything extra. Anytime the upstream application ships a new update, we're going to automatically download those manifests, take those images, push those into internal registries that the enterprise might have, rewrite the images on top of the manifests, and then commit that directly into the version control system that the enterprise has set up. From there, it can flow through their internal processes around you know, policy enforcement, image scanning, whatever else they want to do before it gets deployed. But those deployments you know, then have this like, really clear record 
of all the versions that have ever been delivered to the cluster. Yeah, I think one of our goals with that, the main reason we want to do that was we want to be able to receive third-party software using the same pipelines that you're already using to deploy your first-party software. So if your team's writing APIs and deploying them as part of your product, and you're also receiving third-party software you need to deploy to that cluster, there shouldn't be two different processes involved with getting those released. They should all work through the same pipeline because you've already invested in that. You already have the tooling and the visibility and everything into that. So this set of tools that you've built is about five and a half years in the making. And I'd like to get an understanding of how you arrived at this particular stack and maybe some of the errors or blind alleys that you found along the way. Why did you arrive on this set of open source tools, COTS, COTS ADM, Preflight, and so on, as the set of solutions for being a software vendor that wants to deploy software to an enterprise or an enterprise that wants to consume uh, software from a traditionally cloud vendor? Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, it's many iterations in the making, right? So I, th- I think that's, you know, one, you spend time working with software vendors. And so our customers are folks like, you know, HashiCorp and CircleCI and TravisCI and, and the folks you've had on the show, like Sneak and Bugsnag and DB, all use Replicated as well. And they've been using Replicated Classic for years. And so we work with, you know, 50% of the Fortune 100 to deliver applications like those I mentioned into these enterprise environments in totally secure ways, right? So some of these clusters are air-gapped inside of, you know, a truck in the back of the Middle East, right? So like you have to be able to do this in a very disconnected, secure way in order to support the the most demanding enterprises. And so our tools have really been designed from the ground up to do that. And then the other part, right, is we've just seen Kubernetes become like this project is so widely adopted and it just has such velocity. And so for a long time, and we, we actually wrote our own orchestration and scheduling when we first started the company. But eventually, and our goal there was not like to be an orchestration and scheduling company. It was just to like fill some of the gaps that we felt like we're missing to deliver software this way. But then maybe three years ago, we delivered a version of Replicated that was Kubernetes compatible. And this version that we've delivered is the first truly Kubernetes native way to deliver third-party software. And I say that because it really meets the entire spectrum of end customer needs, right? Online or air gap, we can solve both. It also does something we talk about as existing cluster installations or embedded cluster installations. So I'll differentiate those really quick. Some enterprises have an existing Kubernetes cluster and they need to install your application in it. Maybe they'll create a namespace for you that they want to deploy your software to but you need Kubernetes native tooling to make that happen. And so that's where, you know, Mark kind of mentioned this idea of kubectl plugins, but these kubectl plugins are used by the cluster operator. And kubectl, anyone that has Kubernetes, like has kubectl on their workstation or on some machine they use to control their cluster. And so extending kubectl with functionality, right, like preflight or troubleshoot or COTS, really gives a native experience to the end user to manage that cluster. And then the other side is there's some organizations that, you know, that enterprises don't have really any idea what Kubernetes is yet, right? So, you know, that, that's starting to become less and less, but there's still probably 50% of the market that doesn't have, you know, any kind of Kubernetes initiative or cluster that they're running yet. And so when you deliver them your software, you need to package up or embed Kubernetes with the application. And so we open sourced our embedded Kubernetes installer that we call curl with a K So this is your Kubernetes URL, and it's basically a Kubernetes distro creator that can package up some of the core components of a Kubernetes cluster, right? Because raw Kubernetes and KubeADM doesn't provide all of the like necessary components or add-ons that you would need to create like a usable cluster. So curl sort of is built on top of KubeADM. It adds in these different add-ons and it creates like a very usable cluster that your application can be deployed onto. And that can just be installed either from an AirGap package that we generate or from like a URL, like a curl.sh URL that has like a, a little hash at the end that does, that is an installer for your application. And again, this is totally open source. So like we open source that, we open source all these tools because we think, number one, that anything that the cluster operator is running that's going to power the installation 
and the management of one of these third-party software applications, it should be open source, right? It just makes it more transparent. It's easier to adopt. And ultimately, we have figured out a business model where, you know, our customers are the software vendors. So we have a commercial product that helps them sort of operationalize and scale the distribution of all this, right? And we talk about that in towards the end, but like, we don't need to monetize or to keep these cluster operator tools proprietary. So we open source them. And they're really focused on this idea of, of sort of optimizing the experience and automating as much as you can and reducing the amount of human interaction in terms of supporting and updating and managing these applications. So we spent a lot of time with the existing tool set. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we decided that these are the core features that we needed to have. And these are the core features that any, like, Kubernetes application that's being delivered to an enterprise should have. Any third-party software application delivered through Kubernetes needs some way to be configured and managed and then a way to troubleshoot it and ensure that it's going to run correctly, you know, on every update. And so creating these frameworks and these tools is our way of sort of helping the industry move towards this idea of modern on-prem software. So let's go through some of these open source building blocks that you have. One of the projects you have is called COTS, which is Kubernetes off the shelf. Can you explain what that is and why you needed to build a Kubernetes distribution? Sure. So COTS is not a Kubernetes distribution by itself. It's a tool that's designed to deploy a commercial off-the-shelf software and help you operate commercial off-the-shelf software inside any Kubernetes cluster. And that can be a Kubernetes cluster that was embedded in with the application. It can be a cluster running on, you know, Amazon EKS or GKE or Azure, or it can be OpenShift. It can be whatever you want, AirGap, non-AirGap. The challenge is that, like, application vendors were shipping their application in various ways. You know, Helm charts are a very popular way to distribute applications. Other application vendors would just write application YAML and deliver that to you, and then you'd have to configure that more. So there was still a little bit of disparity in how you would configure and manage that. And then enterprises needed to, you know, inevitably make last mile changes that were only applicable to their enterprise, to their cluster, to their installation. And so COTS is really a tool that tries to help normalize all that through a kube control plugin so you can operate this from your workstation point it to whatever cluster that your kube config your kube context is already set to so you can say kube cuddle cots install whatever application it is and that'll install the admin console get it ready for a license and get the application ready to go from which point you can just take it and run with it and, and build it into any workflow that you might already have got it and Sorry for the confusion there. And then so COTS ADM is a sidecar tool for managing the applications that you create with COTS. Can you describe what COTS ADM does? Sure. Yeah, it's exactly the way we like to talk about it, right? It's a sidecar application. Think of it like an admin console for the application. It's optional, but when it's there, it provides a lot of value around a dashboard and visibility into your license, the ability to troubleshoot it. It creates a web UI around pre-flight checks so that you can see, you know, if your cluster meets the minimum requirements or has suggested, you know, changes that you need to make or upgrades you should make to it. And then the ability to, you know, visually see the diff Kubernetes manifests are becoming that common substrate that we talked about. So it allows you to visually see the diff and the cluster operator can click in when there's an update available and even see the YAML lines of the Kubernetes application that have changed with that update. And then they can decide whether or not they want to deploy that. Or they can then, as Grant mentioned earlier, integrate it into their existing GitOps pipeline if they have that and be able to configure it to just push all those updates to their Git repo. But COTS ADM is a sidecar admin console that will deploy alongside an application. It's, it's a pretty small, not very resource intensive, but it provides a lot of admin functionality that every application developer would probably have to create through like CLIs or their own little web UI. Okay. So I think the COTS and COTS ADM of the six different open source projects that you have, if we want to talk through the process of using your suite of technologies as a vendor, the main idea is that if I have some kind of software that I want to deploy to an enterprise's Kubernetes cluster, 
I'm a vendor. I'm going to make my software compliant with Kubernetes off the shelf, and I'm going to be able to deploy that to the enterprise's Kubernetes cluster. Like if I've got my database, like if I'm Yugabyte DB, I create my database, I make it possible to deploy to the Kubernetes off the shelf version, and COTS will let me deploy it to that kind of Kubernetes, and COTS ADM will let me remotely manage aspects of my vendor distribution, and COTS ADM kind of provides the medium of creating updates and doing kinds of operations, other administrative duties, and creates a medium of communication between the vendor and the enterprise that's actually consuming the vendor software. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. The key piece there is that you know, COTS ADM lives inside of the enterprise's cluster, and it becomes this like tool that automates some of the toil that the enterprise IT admin might be doing in order to manage updates or to troubleshoot the application. So, you know, it's being deployed along with the application. It lives in the cluster. There's no like remote management as much as it can make an outbound request to find updates that you as the software vendor have published. And then it can also, you know, extract, you know, logs and other information, redact those, and then bundle those up either for in-cluster analysis or to be delivered for the vendor for remote or for disconnected troubleshooting. And so we should think about COTS ADM as this like really powerful in-cluster sidecar component for any software vendor that's delivering a Kubernetes application. And then I think probably the most important part, right? So like out of the box, the end customer is going to do this sort of they're going to put in their configuration information around like, oh, what's my host name? Where are my TLS certs? Like, how do I configure this app? You know, and that's very similar to like a Helm values. But then the important part is that once they've set up the application and have it running, they can actually set up the day two operational automation. And that's the stuff that's going to push images into the enterprise's internal version control system and their internal image registry. And so that automated process means that now, instead of like having a task on my list every two weeks to go check for an update and download the software and like run it through some scanning and then like deploy it out, I can basically just use my version control system to merge in these commits to my production deployment. And that is sort of will run through all of my standard processes that I'm using to deploy other Kubernetes services that my internal software teams are deploying. And so it's piggybacking on that same process that you use to deploy internal software and saying, look, now third-party software can be can be managed the same way in a very automated process. Take me inside the engineering at Replicated. So you've got these open source projects. You also have the previous version of Replicated Ship and you kind of have the the evolution of the of the replicated platform to support i just like to know how engineering at the company is organized and what your process of communicating with customers and iterating on the product is sure i mean it's a great question you know we have three different you know versions of replicated that we have out there that we're supporting right now and they weren't ever a complete rewrite from the ground up. We would continue to build on on all of the tooling that we had built in the previous iteration. So even our Kubernetes distribution, this curl project that allows you to create a one-line Kubernetes distribution is really just an open-sourced version of the Kubernetes install scripts that we've been running for the past three-plus years for somebody who had a Kubernetes-compatible version of Replicated Classic. So we've worked really hard on the engineering side to make sure that we don't have three totally different sets of code bases and three different product lines that we're we're actually offering. They're all built on the same thing. And we're actually working hard to take the replicated classic code right now and have that, instead of having it have a fork of the open source stuff that we've created and released under the COTS name, just to be able to use that. So we, we don't have... Like they're all using the same common code base internally. And that's because we're a 
go shop, right? And so a lot of times you're able to vendor these in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we almost all of our code on the back end is written in Go. All of the open source stuff is in Go. And so they reuse each other a lot. And a lot of the things that we do are around Kubernetes operators and Kubernetes custom resource definitions also. And so we have these custom kinds that we've created inside our different projects. And so when we want to use them, we, like as Grant mentioned, we vendor them in and we just create custom resources that are able to use each other. What's on the roadmap? What is important to implement in order to improve the process of software delivery from your point of view? Yeah. You know, I I think the interesting piece is, like, we've been working towards the replicated COTS offering, I mean, really for five years, right? Like, you know, it's sort of over several iterations, you know, I think maybe three years ago when we started to really make Kubernetes a first-class part of what we were doing, we had some of these ideas and, you know, it's been a long road to sort of find the right way to offer this. I mean, partially because the ecosystem is moving very fast, right? If you think about this idea of kubectl plugins, like the whole framework was rewritten maybe like, you know, nine months ago or something. And we think that's a really important part of how cluster operators should be, you know, managing these third-party components. And so... As everything has been changing, you know, we've been trying to make sure we're taking advantage of the latest and greatest, you know, different ways to offer this functionality. And so, you know, this project and in this suite of tools is really exactly what we've wanted to have for a long time. And I think that there, it's an incredibly strong foundation for solving some of the most important problems around configuration, troubleshooting, updating you know, like automating away this toil. And so when I look at the roadmap, right, it's continue to integrate these projects with the broader Kubernetes ecosystem, right? So our curl project, that's the open source sort of Kubernetes distro creator. You know, we're going to integrate that more closely with the add-ons project that or SIG that's happening in the Kubernetes ecosystem, integrate it more closely with the cluster API. And so there's some really interesting things we can do there. But ultimately, our goal with that project is to continue to commoditize the installation and update and management of just a raw Kubernetes cluster, right? Like we don't think that should be some special and hard thing to do. So, you know, we just want to see that so that everyone can have a cluster no matter where they are. Then these other projects, you know, I think about you know, the ability to do pre-flight checks and to troubleshoot these applications, you know, we want to make sure that that project is well adopted and in the standard and becomes a standard for application level troubleshooting in the Kubernetes ecosystem. So we're trying to work with, you know, some of the folks at at Mesosphere on the Kudo project. And, you know, we just like to see, like, we would like to collaborate with more folks on these tools and really build community and consistency so that, you know, that these are not just one-off tools that we created, but they become, and we migrate them towards standards that we all sort of agree will create a better ecosystem for delivering these types of applications. I'm sure Mark has some other thoughts on on Roadmap as well. Yeah, I mean, I think our, our goal with, with COTS is, you know, to make it so that there's compelling enough reason and it's, and it's integrated enough into the enterprise's existing systems and process that they have that whether or not the application is being delivered through a replicated vendor is just a good way to run third-party software because it's you, you have guaranteed success that it's going to install, it's going to update, it's going to be compatible with all the workflows and everything that you want. So we just really want COTS to become an open source good tool that you can use to run any third-party software inside a Kubernetes cluster. And so that's, you know, it could be Helm charts, could be raw Kubernetes manifests, could be operators. We think all of these can benefit from some of the core principles around GitOps and automating workflows and you know having a consolidated dashboard for all your third-party applications. So that COTS ADM product actually has a really cool feature, which you know, if, if you use it as a software vendor to distribute your application, your customer can use it to manage you know, that one application and it's totally white-labeled and it looks like your admin console. But then over time, as that operator really loves these patterns around you know, having their third-party application updates, you know, automated through version control and in their internal registries, and they're not doing the work on that, they can actually start to add additional applications to that admin console. And it becomes multi-app, just like kind of how Slack can go from like one Slack workspace to two to three to five. Like this tool uses a similar 
UI and experience to allow you to manage multiple applications as a cluster operator in this very automated way. As businesses become more integrated with their software than ever before, it has become possible to understand the business more clearly through monitoring, logging, and advanced data visibility. Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform that builds tools for operations, security, and cloud-native infrastructure. The company has studied thousands of businesses to get an understanding of modern continuous intelligence and then compiled that information into the Continuous Intelligence Report, which is available at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic. The sumologic Continuous Intelligence Report contains statistics about the modern world of infrastructure. Here are some statistics I found particularly useful. 64% of the businesses in the survey were entirely on Amazon Web Services, which was vastly more than any other cloud provider or multi-cloud or on-prem deployment. That's a lot of infrastructure on AWS. Another factoid I found was that a typical enterprise uses 15 AWS services, and one in three enterprises uses AWS Lambda. It appears serverless is catching on. There are lots of other fascinating statistics in the Continuous Intelligence Report, including information on database adoption, Kubernetes, and web server popularity. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic and download the Continuous Intelligence Report today. Thank you to Sumologic for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Could you tell me more about the vision for these open source tools actually developing into an ecosystem because you're hinting there at the reason that you had to go from replicated ship or you chose to go from replicated ship to this suite of open source tools. The idea there being that a company like Mesosphere and perhaps other companies in the future would want to use some of these different tools to help facilitate the software delivery process or things that are components of the software delivery process. And I'm just trying to understand your vision for the future of how software is delivered, how software is purchased, the process of deploying it onto Kubernetes clusters. Clearly, you are envisioning a very large potential market because you're indicating that the market is so big that it would not only support multiple commercial players that are going to want to do stuff like this, but so big that these different commercial players are going to want to be contributing to shared open source resources. So I'm just curious about your your perspective for how this market is going to develop over time. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, we really think that the world of enterprise software like it's always been this this sort of duality of of on-prem versus SaaS. And our vision of that, those two worlds should really blend into one. And we think that Kubernetes is the primary driver for that blending. Ultimately, the idea that like every, you know, company is going to run a thousand different SaaS applications and send data off to all these different, you know, multi-tenant apps we think that's insanity, right? We just don't think that the, you know, large organizations are going to want to expose their data to that many different vendors. We don't think that that's a secure way to to think about, you know, your data. And, you know, you as an enterprise are really a steward of so much data. And, you, you know, you have consumers that trust you, you have other businesses that trust you. And when you start to just like, sort of, willy-nilly toss that data into any vendor or you let anyone sort of bottom up use these applications without, you know, the considerations around their compliance and their security, you know, even if you're trying to do, you know, vendor security questionnaires for every piece of software that you use, I mean, trying to manage the security and surface area of a thousand different software vendors is just, it's really hard, right? You just have so many different points of attack. And so, you know, we see a world where you have fewer trusted 
and vetted software like infrastructure providers. And those could be, you know, the big three, you know, hyper clouds like Amazon and Google and Microsoft, where you're using there, you know, as a service, but it's really just infrastructure as a service. And some of, you know, maybe you'll have a handful of other SaaS applications that you also use. Maybe it's Cloudflare, maybe it's Salesforce, whoever else. But the number is definitely not zero vendors that you trust with your data. And the number is definitely not a thousand in terms of vendors that you trust with your data. So that number has to be somewhere in the middle. But we think that the that the world of software, like you just, you have to be able to use a lot of software. And so the only truly secure way to use software, in our opinion, is to deploy it where you have control over the data that you put into it, right? So you're not exposing any of this additional data. And so if you can use lots of third-party applications deployed into servers that you control, well, that's sort of like the panacea. That's that's perfection in our opinion. So and if you can automate the process around how those applications are actually like operationalized and how they're updated and how they're managed and they really become self-healing, well, then you've just you know, like said, okay, now I don't have to think about the data security around these applications nearly as much because I, you know, it's the same data security that I use for internally developed and deployed applications. I don't need to think about the operational overhead because the same operational patterns that I use to deploy internally written applications. And so, you know, we can start to expose more and more software applications that your team can run in your infrastructure and they can start to take advantage of lots of different tools and, and automate more processes and really achieve that like concept of, you know, like overused term of digital transformation and become a software company. And, you know, that vision, I think, is just it's so enormous because you're talking about taking a market of, you know, multi-tenant SaaS applications. It's about 100 billion a year and adding it to a market of, you know, on-prem software deployment, which is still about 400 billion a year, right? Blending those together in a way that accelerates the adoption of software. So, you know, we just think that this model, and when you look at all the alternatives, right, you look at like enterprise key management, which is like a a solution around how do you encrypt data, but keep the keys with the actual enterprise. Like these data still require trust. These models still require trust around the data. And, you know, maybe someday we get to a fully and super fast version of homomorphic encryption. And it's not like a science project, but it's actually something that we're operationalizing and makes sense to use for terabytes and terabytes worth of data. But, you know, everything we know about that doesn't seem to make that like really reality, at least not in the next 20 years, at least not with our current computing technologies. So we think that this idea of modern on-prem is really part of the future. And it's a core driver for how enterprises will make that digital transformation. And with Kubernetes at the center, you know, we just see it as this hugely, like there's this huge amount of momentum behind it already. And we think that it's clear that running third-party software in Kubernetes applications is like the best way to run third-party software. Like no one should be delivering OVAs or JARs or WARs. And we see a lot of these like traditional software companies that had built their applications and have tens or, you know, or thousands of different enterprises using that sort of like legacy on-prem software. They're all making the same transition as the SaaS companies to create Kubernetes versions of these applications, because that way they can take advantage of the patterns and primitives of reliability that Kubernetes provides. And their customers can run their software much more reliably and reduce that operational overhead. So you're seeing these markets really converge into one way of delivering, you know, what we call Kubernetes off the shelf software. And so for us, we want to provide the set of tools that help spur that forward. And we are thrilled to work with anyone who sees that same vision and wants to create tools to make that more possible. And, you know, we think, you know, the success of of Kubernetes overall, like when you step back and you compare it to, you know, Docker or something else, we think it's because it was so open. It's because it was community owned and community driven. And so, you know, that's why we're, we're thrilled to work with anyone that's making these, like that wants to see this reality come true because ultimately standards are really important and they create, you know, the longevity 
and the opportunity behind how something becomes not just a five-year opportunity, but a 20 or 50-year opportunity. I agree with, with what you said. And it's, it's hard to know exactly how the market will shake out, but it's certainly conceivable to me that it is, it is as big and it's going to be changing as much in the direction of Kubernetes as you're indicating. But just to give a little bit more color on the particular area of software that you are solving, that is the delivery process of a vendor delivering to an enterprise, that process actually has a number of roles involved. And it's not just like, I'm a vendor and I'm going to deliver the software to my enterprise and it's going to all be handled by a solutions architect. There's actually multiple different people that are going to be involved. There's going to be customer success. There's going to be sales. There's going to be engineering, solutions architecture, and all these different roles within the software vendor, within the company that is maybe the database or the logging solution that's selling to the enterprise. And my understanding of one of the things you're trying to solve is the communication channel where all of these different roles within the software vendor are talking to the enterprise. Do, do I understand correctly that there is are just like frustrations or difficulties around the communication channel between that vendor and the particular customer and you're trying to consolidate some of that communication? Yeah, yeah. So this is really part of our commercial offering, right? Which is the vendor tooling to operationalize and scale the distribution of Kubernetes off-the-shelf applications, right? And so, you know, this is a product that our customers have been using for years, and it's really just it's focused on things like workflows and processes for release channels, licensing and entitlement management. So this is like, how do you create a customer license? How do you create different values and enable different features per customer? How do you make sure you're delivering the right version to each customer and, and assigning them to different channels? And then how do you manage the, the process around, you know, support and, and making sure that you have, you know, a clear process to troubleshoot those customer environments when an issue does arise. And to your point, we've made all these features be very cross-functional. And so the idea behind the commercial tooling is, hey, you're going to deliver a Kubernetes application, some images to a customer. If you're going to do that like once or twice, like maybe use some of our open source stuff, it's going to help you out. You can write these little manifests that will invoke the pre-flight and the troubleshoot or, you know, can make the COTS ADM available. But if you're going to do this and try to deliver your software to tens, hundreds, thousands of different enterprises, well, that's when you need defined workflows and processes. And that's what our commercial product really offers. So, you know, that's when you would find that you're getting involved more than just an engineer to send some Kubernetes manifests, but you're pulling in, you know, your customer success folks who want to know what version are they on, how are they using the software, you know, what's the latest, you know, like when did they last check to see if there's a new version, your support folks, you're going to want to manage the support bundles that are generated by each of these customers and then sent up once they're redacted. You're going to want to have, you know, folks that are in pre-sales that can create a trial license. And maybe that trial license is generated from a Salesforce integration. And anytime you put a new lead in Salesforce, we generate a new license for them. And you give your pre-sales team the ability to walk in to a customer, give them a great demo, set up an environment so they can try out your product, right? So there's all of these different folks that have to be involved in the process of going to market successfully with a Kubernetes, you know, off the shelf like application. And that's what the commercial replicated tools are really designed for. To close off, what has been the hardest part of building the business over the last five and a half years? What was the, the most difficult point? I'll let Mark take a crack at that first, and then I'll, I'll give my, my perspective. Okay. From an engineering and a product perspective, I think like the most difficult part is definitely been around just how fast moving in like the ecosystem is. You know, five years ago when we started the company, Docker containers were around, but Kubernetes didn't even have the first alpha release yet. And so we needed to build a container scheduling and orchestration system to solve this. And then Swarm came out. And if you think five years is, you know, it's it's not a long time to have gone from a proprietary scheduling and orchestration system rewrite it so we could have support for Docker Swarm and support for 
Kubernetes and then finally to where we are now where we like it's Kubernetes native and it supports Kubernetes. So in general, you know, I'd say one huge technical challenge in product challenge has just really been to staying ahead of and where we need to be to be compatible with both the vendor who often is, you know, bleeding edge and in wants has a Kubernetes application has the latest and greatest and being able to still support enterprise customers who maybe run disconnected offline, older CentOS and RHEL environments that they need to be able to make that all compatible in. Yeah. And I guess from my perspective, man, there's so many different challenges. I mean, this is the second business that Mark and I have run together. And, you know, when we first started it, we felt like we had learned so much from the first business. And now I look back five years ago and realize like how much we've learned now. And, you know, one of the core challenges that I've faced personally is just like, how do you describe really complex and technical solutions that you're building that are super powerful. But like, you know, when the market doesn't necessarily, like not everyone's up to date on all the technologies that you're talking about, but they're foundational in what you're doing. How do you describe that to folks in a way that they really can grok it quickly and see the value and want to learn more, right? And dive deeper and read some docs. Like that's a really big challenge. I think particularly it kind of couples on on top of what Mark was talking about, about how fast the market moves, right? So the Kubernetes ecosystem has just been exploding. And so if you want to describe it, you have to reference, you know, the things that are enabling your technology, but you kind of need folks to be up to date. So they have to be maybe on Hacker News every hour in order to know the latest and greatest, or, you know, be following every release and reading every, you know, every common blog post that's out there. But it's, you know, those are, those are real challenges around building this kind of business. Guys, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2I.